For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. The series is still in production, so if you have any insights, documents or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. In 1970, a group of men, including Irish government ministers and a member of the Irish Army, were arrested on charges of conspiring to illegally import arms. Captain James Kelly of Terenure, Dublin, and Mr John Kelly of Belfast were in court. The men have pleaded not guilty to a charge of conspiring to import arms illegally between the 1st of March and the 24th of April. They were remanded on continuing bail and the case was adjourned until next Friday. 50 years later, the effects of this crisis are still spoken of by the children of those involved. I knew there was some drama going on. There was a lot of activity outside the house. There was a lot of photographers and two big special branch men. They were bad people for some reason had come to take away the da. I must have been swinging on the gate, some of the neighbours would say, who are you? And my name's Bruna Kelly. And where's your mum and your daddy at? Oh, Jack Lynch put my daddy in jail. And that was spread into me. And they punched him, did they? They did, they punched him and kicked him, you know. Yeah, but the following day, it was when my father got the heart attack. You're listening to episode two of Gun Plot. I'm Nicolene Greer and together with my colleague Ronan Kelly and the RTE Documentary in One Team, we are unpicking the stories that make up one of the biggest political scandals Ireland has ever seen. The arms crisis of 1970. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot, and available on the RTE player. In episode one, we heard about how Irish Army Captain James Kelly witnessed the three-day Battle of the Bogside. Police have just put on gas masks in an apparent preparation for the use of tear gas. And we followed Captain Kelly to Belfast, where he listened on the car radio to a momentous address to the nation by the Taoiseach Jack Lynch. Police attacks on the people of Derry should cease immediately. In this speech... Lynch appeals to the British government, who rule Northern Ireland. To apply immediately to the United Nations for the urgent dispatch of the peacekeeping force to the six counties of Northern Ireland. And then he uttered this veiled threat. It is clear also that the Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps Captain worse. Kelly was listening to the speech with a friend and they had stopped their car in a Catholic area. When Jack Lynch had finished speaking... They saw a woman standing in her doorway and they called over to her and asked her had she heard the speech and she said that she had and that at last the Dublin government was going to do something for them. Jack Lynch never said what he meant by the Irish government no longer standing by but one member of his cabinet knew exactly what he thought it should mean and although Captain Kelly didn't know it then he was going to be instructed to work closely with this cabinet member over the following months. Who was he? There's not a Blaney or an in-law of a Blaney 
Let us introduce you to Neil Blaney, a central character in this story who found himself accused of conspiring to illegally import guns into Ireland in 1970. For Ireland and all its people, north and south, east and west. Neil Blaney was the Irish Minister for Agriculture and Fisheries, but he was better known for being the member of the government who most loudly opposed British rule in the north of Ireland. I want our people... All those who are not here tonight from the six counties to know and appreciate perhaps as never before that we here on this side of the border, we do care about that. I was in the crowd, a lot of those, in the square in Letterkenny on the back of a lorry and it was powerful stuff. Neil Blaney's son, Eamon. And it would be jammed, packed with people and the speeches would start and they would be passionate. Because you are our people... We are your people regardless of religion. He was well capable of putting on a good show. Whether you want... He could play his audience. <laughs> and, uh, and he had a lot to say. He had an awful lot to say. We're all one. We're all Irish. And we're going to get together. And I hope in the not too distant future. Mr Bailey, you've been painted in the past as the wild man from Donegal and even as Bang Bang Blaney. Do you resent uh, this painting or character in this way? I think I used to resent it because I don't believe that it is a true uh, reflection of my behaviour over the years. Did you like Blaney? I was impressed by Blaney. This is Paul Sachs. He was a political science student who came from California in the late 1960s to study Neil Blaney's constituency machine in Donegal. There was a sort of cult, you know, around Blaney. If you were in a pub and start to say something negative or heard people say negative, you'd see hear a hush come over the room. You know, there was a certain amount of intimidation. People did not want, and there was no basis for it. I never heard of anybody being physically threatened or anything like that, but people did not want to break ranks, if you will, with the boss. And his position, Blaney's position as a cabinet minister and as someone who had a reputation as a Republican, helped in all of that. Neil Blaney was proud of his Republican pedigree. His own father had been sentenced to death on charges of possessions of arms and ammunition. And Neil Blaney stoked his own Republican reputation at many an opportunity. I was born and reared on Republicanism. And this was very, very much in the forefront of my mind when I came to enter the political arena for the first time. Paul Sachs recalls a story that Neil Blaney himself told in the Irish Parliament, The Dáil. This was Blaney's Republican origin story, if you will. What I was told was that one evening when he was two, uh, he was asleep in his cot and soldiers from the Irish army raided the house, led by an officer uh, who was drunk. Uh, during the raid, Blaney said he was kicked out of his cot by the officer, um, and that event stayed in his head and became one of the foundations of his later republicanism. And now, in the summer of 1969, there was an opportunity for Republicans like Neil Blaney to push their case for the British to give up ruling the north of Ireland. The Battle of the Bogside and attacks on Catholics were bringing international attention to the situation in the six counties. But Neil Blaney was frustrated. Not everyone around the cabinet table shared his passion. For example, the story is told that Neil Blaney's phone rang on the night of August the 12th, when stones and petrol bombs were flying in the bogside. 
the caller said the area was under attack from the police. The caller was asking for help. They wanted Neil Blaney's government to step in and protect them. When Neil Blaney put the phone down from the caller in Derry, he called his boss in Dublin, the Taoiseach, Jack Lynch. There was no answer. Someone got in touch with the police guard outside the Taoiseach's house. They rang the doorbell and banged on the door. No answer. It was the early hours of the morning and Jack Lynch had a rule. He was not to be disturbed before 5am. And on the morning of August the 13th, 1969, he stuck to that rule. If Jack Lynch was awake inside the house, listening to the door being banged, he may have guessed that the ruckus was caused by a politician who not only wanted his attention, but also wanted his job. Because Blaney was ambitious. He felt he could do a better job as Taoiseach than Jack Lynch. For the moment, though, Jack Lynch had done one thing that Neil Blaney and fellow Republicans approved of. In his speech, he had sent one particular message. It is clear also that the Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured. We would not stand by. One person who did approve was Hugh Doherty. At the time, he was a young rioter who watched Lynch's speech in the Bogside. Well, there was a big cheer went up. No, really? Oh, yeah. A big cheer went up because the meaning of those words meant something big. It meant to the Catholics that they were no longer on their own in their fight against the police, their Protestant neighbours and the British government. Jack Lynch's speech was interpreted as a promise to send troops over the border. This is the civil rights activist Eamon McCann. The Prime Minister of the South comes on television and says, we will not stand by. What interpretation are you to put on that? Other than that, they're on their way. Jack Lynch, I said he has done more in one hour. Jack Lynch, he has done more more hour for to help the people of Derry. He's a gentleman and he's going to send in help to Derry. I agree. And the whole street was cheering. <laughs> the whole street was cheering. Jeannie Mac. And everybody was happy. Not everybody in Derry was happy. Those words meant different things to different people, depending which community you were part of. Protestants like the 16-year-old apprentice boy Gregory Campbell saw Jack Lynch's proclamation, We Will Not Stand By, as a definite threat. That was incendiary. That was throwing the proverbial petrol on the flames. Those flames were about to become a wildfire. Because, if you remember, the Irish army was already on its way to the border with the north of Ireland. We have therefore directed the Irish army authorities to have field hospitals established in County Donegal, adjacent to Derry and at other points along the border where they may be necessary. The field hospitals are a cover for army mobilisation. This is Brian Hanley. He's studied the arms crisis and written about it. I mean, the Irish army was being sent to the border and it was being done so under the cover of a medical effort. But it wasn't simply a medical effort. I mean, troops were being sent with the equipment they had and the popular reaction. Troops, you know, leaving Fermoy, for example, on their way up to Port Leash, every town they go to, there's crowds on the streets cheering. That sounds incredible. The Irish army soldiers being cheered off to war as they headed towards the Northern Irish border. Almost overnight, it seemed as if battle lines had been drawn with Protestants, Unionists 
and the British on one side and Catholics, Nationalists and the Irish on the other. Well, can I just get you to kind of introduce yourself? My name is Sean O'Sullivan. Sean O'Sullivan from Cork was a 19-year-old fitter in the Cavalry Corps, the section of the army responsible for tanks and other armoured vehicles. He remembers the day he found out he was being mobilised because he was in training. It wasn't for a war, but for an athletics road race. A 12-mile race from Batai back into Kildare on the 15th of August, which was a holy day. And uh, I was looking forward to it. But anyway, that all fell asunder on the 14th of August. We told we were going to be going to head to the border instead. Sean's unit was told to move out at short notice. We loaded up with all our personal stuff. What about the supplies before you were leaving? <clears throat> well, what happened was when we loaded up, we realised we went off for all the rations and the other group went off for all the blankets. Well, we got over that. That was the first thing we remember so well. Yeah. We were in barracks and then we were called by our, our company commander. John Malone was a 19-year-old Irish Army soldier based in Kildare. And it was given a brief instruction that we were now being mobilised. We were told nothing other than we are moving north or we will be revealed when we get there. That was the limit of the communication. We were given a time to be ready for move out and to my recollection I distinctly think it was a Friday because a lot of guys were giving out crap saying oh god there's the weekend is gone like we set up the campsite then in a big field it was under canvas the logistics was not as good as it is today because we found that we didn't get food for about two days properly Sean O'Sullivan's army units got to their destination in Donegal in the early hours of the morning, still supposedly on a humanitarian mission, although not everyone believed that. It was getting late, so we decided to pull in and sleep on the side of a hill. The, the, um, would the locals have noticed that and kind of thought, what, why, why are there a lot of armoured We met one local about three o'clock in the morning we were getting before we were pulled into that place. He was standing in in the side of a village. We pulled up, we were looking for directions. And he said, I know where you're going. (laughs) Meaning we were going in over the border or something like that. uh, That's what he said. I know where you're going. He didn't have to tell me. So so it just shows you that some of them people knew what was happening as well from that area. They had to have known, you know. Yeah. And where, as far as you know, like where, how does it work in terms of where do the orders come from? This, that you guys oh, were shipped up there? Negotiations would have went on with the ministers of the day, which were Minister of Defence. I forget who was Minister of Defence of the day. I know the Blaney, he was... Jim Gibbons? Gibbons, yeah. And uh, that was passed down to the military because the military would jump sky high when a politician would open them out, especially in them years. When Sean and his unit were in Donegal, one of those politicians was just a few miles away in the city of Derry. Neil Blaney was checking out what was going on, and although he wasn't Minister for Defence, he did have an opinion on the use of the army, which he conveyed to a newspaper reporter, Frank Kilfeather, who he bumped into there. Blaney was very angry, and I said, but you know, if we tried to invade the north, we'd be wiped out and all the rest. He said, that's not the point. The point is, he said, if we were to enter the north, after a couple of days, the United Nations would step in and that would sort it out. And of course, I didn't say, but I mean, 
the, the speed the United Nations works at, the, the, you'd be waiting months and months for them to do anything or for something to happen. But he, he held that view, I know. If that plan of Neil Blaney's was to go ahead, Sean O'Sullivan and his comrades would be the ones provoking the United Nations to come in by invading the North. Were, were people scared at that prospect? So they would be scared in their own way. There's no doubt in that. Nobody would want going over the border. And that was especially true when the British government finally decided to send the British army into the northern side, into Derry, to intervene between the police and the rioters in the ongoing Battle of the Bogside. The troops drove into the city centre at exactly 5.15. They were in jeeps and large lorries, which were covered over with protective steel mesh. The arrival of the British army into Derry marked the end of the Battle of the Bogside and it should have eased the pressure on the Irish government to intervene. But the local residents in Derry did not want to see British troops stay there permanently. This is a fantastic scene. The leader of the Nationalist Party, Mr Eddie McAteer, trying to force back the Roman Catholics who are chanting, no British troops here, we want the Irish army here. We want the Irish army in here. There may have been this clamour for the Irish army to invade the North and Neil Blaney may have thought they could enter the North to prompt the United Nations to send a peacekeeping force but the Irish army was poorly resourced and ill-prepared. For example, it was equipped not with state-of-the-art machinery but with vehicles that other armies didn't want any longer. Oh, we had about six tanks at the time. There were two Churchill and four Comets. Okay, and like, they must have been... Um, they were very old, very old. They were made for the Sahara Desert, I think, and uh, the British Army, and they never were used. So the Irish government took them. They were not tanks that would be of any use on the border in August 1969. Tanks never went to Donegal, or they never went. So it would been lethal anywhere to bring them up there because you could hear them tanks 10 miles away. Okay. And uh, they were an easy prey. But hundreds of Irish army soldiers did go to the border, and news of this added to heightening tensions in the north. There were some members of the Protestant community that were not going to take this implied threat from the Irish government lying down. They launched an attack on their Catholic neighbours. I was at the Crumlin Road last night when the first petrol bombs were thrown. Protestants came onto the Crumlin Road from Shankill, Houses were set on fire, as well as a public house and a bookmaker's shop. With terrible speed, the trouble spread. There were reports that these specials were distributing guns to Protestants in Shankill, and that the specials were driving through the streets in tenders and shooting anyone they could see. Throughout the night, sniping began... On one of those streets, a nine-year-old boy called Robin Livingstone lived with his family. Their house was on the Catholic end of the street. So what, what were the kind of first indications that things were going bad that night? Or can you recall? Yeah, I can. Indeed, my oldest brother, Patrick, was 10 years older than me. He was 18 at the time. And uh, he came into the house um, very excited, told my father, and that I had the foggiest idea what was going on. It was the night after the Taoiseach speech. Robin wrote about that night, years later, in a book of memories... And in it, you experience the night from a child's point of view. At tea time, the crowds were down at the Shanko Road end of our street. 
They set the GAA club on fire first. Then some houses. We were all in the back of the house. Outside on the street, a member of parliament was urging them on, shouting, kill the nits. Kill the nits, they go the lice. They shouted about Fenians, which was an abuse term to refer to Catholics. Eventually, the mob came to Robin Livingstone's house. They started the kick at the front door. Then a petrol bomb came through the front window. My daddy and my brother started to pile furniture against the front door. Then my daddy ran back and said, Everybody out, out the back. We had to climb up the back wall. My mummy was afraid because it was so high. Then we ran across Divis Street. The police and B specials were throwing bricks and bottles at us. My father had my baby sister in his arms. And he started shouting at them to let the women and kids through. The police just laughed and said, Fuck off, you Fenian bastard. Robin's family managed to get to a vacant house in the city and survive. But that night, seven people were killed in Belfast. Five Catholics, including a little boy, and two Protestants. They were among the first victims of what would become known as the Troubles. All seven had been shot dead. That news was on Captain Kelly's car radio as he left Belfast and drove back to Dublin. Driving through the deserted falls area this morning, I heard the staccato burst of machine gun fire. As we drove past a side street, three men on the corner dived for cover. And although he was still on leave, Captain Kelly drove to the office of the Irish Army Intelligence and reported to his superior officer, the Director of Army Intelligence, Colonel Michael Heverin, on what he had seen in the north. Colonel Hefferin ordered Captain Kelly to forget everything else he was working on and to focus on the North from now on. And he was instructed to try and develop contacts with the people he had met in Belfast and Derry. One phenomenon Captain Kelly reported on was house swapping, whereby if Catholics found themselves living in a mostly Protestant area or vice versa, they would arrange to swap their homes so that they could live in an area of people with the same religion as their own and feel safer. If people living in mixed areas didn't swap their houses or move voluntarily, they were often burnt out or intimidated out. In Derry, the Protestant apprentice boy Gregory Campbell saw this with his own family. We had relatives of my mother who lived close to the bogside in a mixed area and they were intimidated out of their homes and came to live with us for a few days until they could get more permanent accommodation. and thousands of Northern Catholics who had nowhere to go poured across the border as refugees, putting even more pressure on the government in Dublin. And they told their stories to local media. Local men in the area decided to move the women and children and elderly people out. This is from a TV report, but the people in it have their back to the camera so they can't be identified. And when they were being put into the vans and private cars, which was to take them into another district for safety, they were being sniped on from the top of a local mill. 
And at one stage, when loading the people into the van, the women and children were forced to lie flat in the middle of the street. And some of them had to crawl up the street on their stomachs to get into the vans. The police made no attempt whatsoever to remove the sniper. And at one stage, the sniper was actually pointed out to them. And the reply was, well, we can't do very much about it. And they burned all the houses. They burned the houses and wrecked the houses and threw petrol bombs. And they stood and watched the houses burning down. And when there was once homes, there's nothing only spare ground. There's nothing only spare ground. Were the police here at this time? Yes, the police were in, and they let them come in on us. They destroyed people's homes and they broke them up. And the bloodshed and the death. Stories like these ratcheted up the pressure on the Irish government because they brought protesters out onto the streets in the Republic. You will agree to demand from the Irish government that the Irish government invades the North. And this pressure bolstered the case for Neil Blaney at the Cabinet table in his calls for a more direct militaristic intervention. But, as we've heard, the Irish army was in a terrible state and no match for the British army, which was mobilised just a few miles away. And there was another reason for the Irish army not to invade. And this reason was brought into stark relief by the house burnings in Belfast after the Taoiseach's speech. Michael Heaney outlines it. The Catholics in Belfast are completely surrounded. He worked as a young reporter during the arms crisis. and He later made TV programmes and wrote a book on the episode. And if... The Irish army were to cross the border. The Catholics would be extremely vulnerable to attack and that would probably have ended up as a total disaster. When the point was put to Blaney that any crossing of the border by the Irish army would result in disaster for the Catholics in Belfast at the very least, that they all agreed that that was not the way to go. So they decided that the Irish army was not going to invade the North, for the moment. However, the Irish army units were still on the border. John Malone, who had travelled from Kildare with his unit, ended up in County Cavan. And they did actually invade the North, though not intentionally. The border wasn't really signposted, it was just back roads and side roads and that. So the only time you were in the north of Ireland is when you came across a red uh, phone box because, <laughs> because inevitably in the south our phone boxes were green. So you only knew that you were after moving into the, the, the northern territory when you came across the red phone box. So it was always a joke like as to how do you know you're in the north of Ireland? Oh well we've seen the red phone boxes so now we know that we're, we're in the wrong side of the border. When he wasn't out on patrol and when he was in camp John Malone noticed an occasional visitor to their unit. Captain Kelly, he was in civilian clothing, as to my knowledge, I'd never seen him in a uniform. But then again, he's military intelligence, so he may not have been uniformed. That's the same Captain Kelly, the Irish Army intelligence officer who had been ordered by his superior officer to focus his efforts on the north. When Captain Kelly wasn't in army facilities, he was around the north, in places like the Bogside in Derry, where the young rioter Hugh Doherty said he came across him outside the back of his house. It was on a quiet day and I was up in the garage in Western Street and this fellow started snooping around the back of the house and I went to challenge him 
And that's who it turned out to be, was Captain Kelly. It turned out that the reason Captain Kelly was around the back of Hugh's house was because Hugh's father, Paddy, was on the local defence committee. And he told me who he was and he wanted to speak to any representative of the committee. So I should write and you and went down and opened the committee room and left it to him. These defence committees had been formed by people in the neighbourhoods under attack. They coordinated everything from medical help to food supplies to weapons and ammunition, which in the early stages meant bottles and petrol. And for Captain Kelly, the defence committees were important sources of on-the-ground information. This is him speaking in 1980. I was an intelligence officer meeting people, talking to them, finding out what they wanted, what they felt they required. When the B-specials came in... What they required was made perfectly clear to the people in the Irish Republic by speakers at the protests in O'Connell Street, Dublin. We have nothing. We have nothing up there. Sticks and stones. What man can defend his wife and family with sticks and stones? It's arms we want. Arms we want. And the reason they were looking for arms was because the Irish army wasn't coming in to defend them against the police, the B-specials and the mobs. And there was no sign of a United Nations peacekeeping force. So, they argued, they were going to have to defend themselves on their own. And to do that, they wanted guns. Eamon McCann from the Bogside recalls that people turned to the IRA for help. The IRA, or the Irish Republican Army, had fought for decades for the island of Ireland to be one country under one Irish government. But in recent years, the IRA had been relatively dormant. We're going down William Street. There was a riot going on, and we could see the B specials at the end of the street with guns openly displayed. And I was alongside Johnny White of the official IRA in Derry. And I remember walking down in the middle of a riot, walking down beside Johnny, and somebody shouting at him because he knew that he was in the Republican movement. So, have we guns, White? Have we guns? And I walked down and I said, Johnny, have we guns? <laughs> and it turned out we did have guns. The bogs had guns, I think there were five of them. None of them was a very modern weapon. There was a couple of Thompsons. Remember, there was a stem gun and a couple of handguns. That was the armoury of the IRA in Derry at the time, in August 1969, as the troubles erupted. We weren't looking for bandages or for blankets or whatever. This is Belfast IRA man, John Kelly. We were looking for arms, we were looking for the means of defence. And there was a trickle of guns going over the border from Irish civilians. Farmers sent shotguns, hunters sent rifles, old arms dumps from previous wars were opened up. And to all of this, the authorities seemed to turn a blind eye or even helped. For example, one IRA man, Joe Cahill, recalled that he was returning back over the border with some old guns that they had got down south. But as they approached the border post, among the officials up ahead, he recognised a guarded detective. And the detective recognised him. The detective walked towards the IRA man's car. The IRA man had a machine gun in his hands. It was a Thompson submachine gun. The kind of gun you see in old gangster movies from the 1930s. As the detective came nearer the car, the IRA man wound down the window and raised the gun. Before the detective could say something, 
the IRA man, spoke. He said, we have weapons. And then, showing him the machine gun, he said, I will blow the head off your shoulders. To the IRA man's surprise, the detective kept coming. In his hands, he had a parcel. He handed it through the car window and said, I've come over here to give you something. The IRA man drove on. When he opened the parcel, it contained a Colt 45 gun and 50 rounds of ammunition. Incredibly, that guard, the detective, was actually abiding by the wishes of his political master, the Minister for Justice, who issued a directive in August 1969 which read, The movement of arms for the defence of the minority in the six counties across the border should not be inhibited by prosecution or harassment by the authorities in the South. And IRA man John Kelly said they took advantage of that. Anyone who had a spare shotgun or whatever, you know, that we could approach, we approached them. And, you know, I must say that in travelling throughout the 26 counties, people from all political persuasions were actually handing out whatever they had, shotguns, old relics that went back to 1920, you know, they were actually handing them over to us and giving them to us, you know. But such piecemeal donations of guns weren't enough. Northern Catholics were looking for a proper supply of arms. And to get that, a group came south of the border to see one man they had all come to know in the previous few days in Derry and Belfast. This is Terry Newer, a suburb in Dublin, outside the house where Captain Kelly lived in 1969. At the end of the week of the Battle of the Bogside and the Belfast house burnings, a delegation came here to meet him in his family home. There were citizens representing people who were under attack or felt that they might be under attack in the six counties. And they came down here looking for assistance. They came to him and they asked for arms. They asked for me for arms. But Captain Kelly told the delegation that he couldn't help them. He was just an intelligence officer. He told them they'd have to contact the Irish government. The same Irish government was in a quandary. They had decided not to send the army across the border. They had failed to get a United Nations peacekeeping force onto British soil in the north. Neil Blaney was angry and frustrated at what he saw was Irish government in action. So the cabinet decided to set up a subcommittee and put him on it. It sounds like a brush off to mollify him, but it was actually a big deal because that subcommittee had the potential to be quite powerful because it was given an enormous amount of money to spend, £100,000. That's an incredible 1.5 million euros in today's money. More incredible is that the brief for the committee seemed vague. The money was to be spent for the relief of distress in the north. And what relief of distress in the north meant wasn't specified. The subcommittee of the cabinet was small, just four ministers. Neil Blaney, Charles Hawhey, the minister for finance, who had control of the £100,000, and two other politicians from counties on the border. Joseph Brennan and Porrick Faulkner. The first meeting of the committee was called and immediately there was a problem. Martin Gibbons is the son of the Minister for Defence in that government. There was an arranged meeting between the four of them and Joe Brennan and Porrick Faulkner turned up and Mr Hawhey and Mr Blaney decided not to. So that thing never worked at all, that committee, you know. The subcommittee never met again. 
but Charles Hahi and Neil Blaney did. And they were left with £100,000 and they were the only ones to decide what to do with it. In the meantime, Captain Kelly kept going back up north, as ordered, gathering information. According to his writings later, all that information was for him leading to one conclusion. For example, he told of one visit to Belfast where he attended a meeting in a Catholic area. He said it was put to him forcibly that arms were needed. Things were relatively calm in the city at the time, so he said that he suggested to the meeting that there was a month or two to sort things out. Then one man jumped up and told him he was wrong, that they were sitting on a tinderbox and that violence could break out at any time. As if to prove that man right, within half an hour, Captain Kelly said, there were groups of Catholic and Protestant mobs facing each other in a narrow street nearby. They had to be separated by a unit of the British Army. After that meeting, Captain Kelly drove back to Dublin. But this time, he didn't just meet his superior officer, the Director of Irish Army Intelligence. He later wrote that he was also instructed to go and meet with two ministers in the Irish government. And those two men were Neil Blaney and Charles Hawhey. So Captain Kelly told them what he had witnessed happening in the north. What were Neil Blaney and Charles Hawhey going to do with the information Captain Kelly brought them? And what were they going to do with the £100,000 they had been given by the Cabinet? Soon, they would be part of a plan where they would use that money to try and get guns to Catholic civilians in the North. A simple plan? Let's see just how simple in Episode 3 of Gunplot. The Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse. This series is still in production, so if you have any insights, documents or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. Sound by Damien Chanel. Production assistance from the Documentary and One team. Robin Livingstone's memories were read by Erin Humphrey. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot, and available on the RTE player. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE Documentary and One production. We live in trouble today.